Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, everybody. This is Venk. Thank you so much for continuing to support our podcast and listening to what we produce for you all. Uh, this is another episode in our Grand Rounds subset or series where we take the recordings from our didactic series in the department and share it with you all more broadly. As you can imagine, sometimes things don't fit directly into the audio space. There might be visuals that you can't access, and we are working to try and overcome that barrier. But there's huge value still in what is able to be heard and the conversations that are happening. So I hope you enjoy this. Today's uh, conference is called Fusion Skills, The Frog, The Fox, and The Electric Sheep, and is presented by two amazing speakers. I'm going to let you hear my introduction of them that happened live, and then the conference as a whole will be presented afterwards. I hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. I'm really excited to host two world-renowned speakers today for you all, Drs. Daniel Cabrera and Felix Ankel. Dr. Ankel is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Minnesota and is medical director for education, also serves as associate, de associate dean for medical school faculty at Health Partners, and is formerly the vice president of Health Partners Institute. His achievements within medical education span nearly 30 pages long on his CV and include having served as DIO, for Regents Hospital, Associate Department Head for Academic Affairs and Residency Director in Emergency Medicine. Dr. Ankel is incredibly active with the American Board of Emergency Medicine, including roles on their Governance Committee, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, Research Committee, and more. He has been part of the Board of Directors for ABEM and contributed to the ABEM certification process at many stages. He has received education awards both nationally and internationally, including things like the Council of Emergency Medicine Residency Directors Faculty Teaching Award and the International Medical Educator of the Year Award from the Royal College of Canada. He is author to more than uh, to nearly 45 publications, not to mention numerous book chapters, blog posts, podcasts, and the like. He is a world-renowned speaker in medicine with invitations throughout this country as well as internationally. And the talks are the kind that reservations go fill up lightning fast. Also speaking today with him is Dr. Daniel Cabrera, who is Associate Dean for Continuous Professional Development and an Associate Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine here at Mayo Clinic. He has previously served as Chair of Education for our department and Associate Residency Director for the Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Cabrera has served as faculty for the ASAP EMF Teaching Fellowship for several years now and was the editor-in-chief for the Mayo Clinic EM blog and is the co-director of the world-recognized Mayo Hootsuite Healthcare and Social Media course, um, which is, like I said, incredibly popular around the world. He serves at, in the advisory board of numerous national and international educational societies, and his career is equally decorated with pu publications, book chapters, blog posts, podcasts. But somewhat uniquely, Dr. Cabrera has developed numerous technology innovations, including automatic resource allocation systems, artificial intelligence algorithms for management optimization, network analysis of knowledge management, and distributed testing. As a result, he is the current director for the Emergency Medicine Platform for Knowledge Solutions, which is an idea incubator focused on innovation, entrepreneurship, digital health, and knowledge creation. His academic interests include artificial intelligence, wicked problems, knowledge management, clinical decision-making, health professions education, and of course, the interaction between humans and non-human agents. And more personally, Dr. Cabrera has been an outstanding friend and guide for me throughout my career and an inspiration, truly. He invited me to the very first international speaking opportunity I ever had, which was in Chile. And it was an incredible privilege to see firsthand how loved he is outside of Mayo Clinic. I have appreciated every chance I've had to listen to both Dr. Ankel and Dr. Cabrera, and they routinely challenge me to look at the world differently. And so it's my true, true privilege and pleasure to welcome them here today for you all. Thank you. Thank you, Venk, for the introduction. Um, it's our pleasure to be here 
And um, it's always a pleasure to speak with Felix. We're like um, brothers from different mothers uh, that the world put together in Minnesota. We're uh, gonna start sharing my screen. Today, we're gonna talk about the future of healthcare professions education and also the future of healthcare in general. And we call this lecture, uh, the frog, the fox and the electric ship. If you want to read a little bit more about this, there's a few blog posts that we wrote for the ICENET for Canada. And also there's some slides that are available in the internet. We can send the links after this. Conflict of interest, uh, Ben mentioned that already, but um, uh, we, I have some uh, IP royalties about some technologies and Felix is part of the board of directors for emergency medicine. None of this conflict of interest will affect the content today. And let me start with this. Uh, some of you, not very many, uh, were around April 25, 2017. And at that time, uh, Felix and I, we uh, gave grand rounds also about the future of healthcare. And at that time, we make the proposition that the future of healthcare will um, orbit around three domains. And those domains were knowledge, agents, and networks. And now uh, we are five years into the future and we're gonna briefly um, um, highlight how our predictions came to fruition. Felix, you want to take over? Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, again, thank you for the invitation. As, as Daniel said, uh, I think uh, Daniel and I have had sort of this academic bromance for over a decade uh, and uh, always get energized when, when talking to him. Uh, the other just uh, clarification is I'm speaking as, uh, as an individual, not for the American Board of Emergency Medicine right now uh, uh, for that. Uh, but as Daniel said, is, is I wanted just to start out with, with sharing three frames about knowledge, uh, about identity, and about uh, uh, structure. Uh, if you look at what's interesting to me, there's actually people that that look at the science of the future as a profession. If you Google the Association of Professional Futurists, uh, uh, you'll see the science behind that. Uh, and there's sort of this seven or eight uh, 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 common themes about predicting the future. The one I just wanted to talk about is this whole concept of hard trends and soft trends. And hard trends are things that are changing and will be changing. And soft trends are things that may be changing. And a lot of times in predicting the future is trying to sort out what is a hard trend and what is a soft trend. Again, this talk's probably gonna, as a, a residents at regions would say it's meta, or I would say it's even meta meta. But I, I, I would like you to think about three trends that I think are hard trends. The first one is, is our relationship to knowledge. Uh, for me personally, I think the value judgment of physicians has always been in the space between information and knowledge. If you go from data to information and knowledge to wisdom, you know, patients come in, give you information, something magic happens in the interaction with the clinician. There's knowledge that uh, 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 gets transferred and good things happen. Value gets created, care gets up. I would suggest to you that the information to knowledge space is probably going to be automated. And I think the value judge, uh, the, the value proposition for clinicians is actually going to be between the knowledge to wisdom space. And that space is a shared space. It's shared with patients, shared decision-making. It's, it's shared with, with families. It's shared with members of the healthcare uh, uh, team, but also is, is shared with machines and will, will be so. So that's the first sort of hard trend. The other thing I just wanna say before I go on is our, our, our intent is for this to be a conversation. And so there'll be some breaks on that because we'd love to hear a, sort of your reflections on that. The next hard trend is, I think our relationship with identity is gonna be less binary. Uh, it used to be that you were a physician or not a physician, a nurse, not a physician, a clinician or administrator. Uh, I think people are moving what I would call from binary 
uh, professional identities to quantum professional identities where you can be a particle and a waveform at the same time. And we'll uh, offer some, uh, some examples on how that is happening. And especially, you know, if we look at COVID as a laboratory or COVID as an, uh, as an accelerant uh, on that and how professional identity is a little bit more fluid the, what I wanted to kind of introduce is the best uh, 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 sort of metaphor is this whole concept of a nomad and characteristics of nomads is, is that these are people that, that really feel comfortable in multiple disciplines and, and really have this humility about knowledge where they learn and unlearn. Uh, uh, this humility about professional identity and, and humility about structure, they speak hierarchy and they speak uh, network. And you can kind of tell who nomads are is, is when they speak, they, they try to make a difference rather than make a point. They elevate a conversation rather than, than maximize a position. And I think really the future is, is about nomads. The, the third hard trend is really how we see on, how we look at structure. You know, healthcare is, has really been a hierarchical sort of uh, operation and which works great for manufacturing economies. I think for knowledge economies, there are some limitations. Uh, but hierarchies are good if you need to build an infrastructure such as finance or IT or planning uh, or communication. Sometimes what happens in hierarchies is those infrastructures become superstructures and they actually are the ones that are, 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 are calling the shots, which has some limitations. I think what we're seeing is an evolution to a more decentralized uh, uh, environment and even I think the future will be more distributed. So Felix just highlighted the three domains that we talked five years ago, but let me give you examples, example from Mayo. So the domain of knowledge, now we have this artificial intelligence, the Anumana company, which is a partnership between Mayo and Inference, that the goal is not to diagnose disease, but to predict disease before it happens. It's sort of like a precognition medicine. And this is based on knowledge management, taking data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom, and then to the next step. The second domain was agents. And we made the case five years ago that we need to start interacting with agents. And most of you know now that Mayo uses uh, autonomous robots to transfer staff between campuses, especially in Florida. And most of you know that we use some uh, autonomous robots to clean rooms. So that's happening right now. And the third domain is this con conceptualization of knowledge and conceptualization of relations using networks and network theory. And we have this example from our own Dr. Laura Walker about analyzing patient transfer and patient flow using uh, network analysis. So the three things that we discussed five years ago that seem a little bit uh, far-fetched, they're actually happening. And it's important to realize how these things are impacting our present. So we are uh, designing this lecture in three parts, uh, the frog, the fox, and the electric sheep. And uh, we're gonna talk about the three parts and at the end of each segment, uh, we're gonna take some questions before going forward. And Bank is going to be uh, facilitating the, the questions through the chat or through Slido. So first we're gonna start with the frog. Felix, do you want to take us about, take us about this explosion? Yeah, so the frog, uh, part of it is sort of this uh, parable of the frog in tepid water wanted, uh, uh, um, so the, the parable is really, if you put a frog in water, uh, if you heat it up really quick, they'll jump out of the water. If you slowly heat the water, uh, the frog will not realize the change until it's too late and uh, die. Uh, I think there's a, a few things that are happening right now that is slowly heating the water uh, that I wanted to share. The, the first one is, is this graph. And, and truly this is the graph of, of knowledge in the world, graph of publications, uh, 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 things that are known. As you can see for 
the most part of the 20th century, it was a, it was a linear uh, sort of increase. And so most of our structures are built around linear increases in knowledge. I think what happened in the early 80s, it became exponential. And what we're doing is we're still trying to manage knowledge, looking at linear sort of mechanisms, uh, structures, how we do professional identity and all that. But I think that shift is truly one of the slowly heating waters that, that until we adjust to managing knowledge on an exponential basis, we also may burn in this hot water. So next slide. So what Felix was saying is the parable of the frog in the boiling water. And our message for you, for all of, for all of you who are listening today is, you should not be like the frog. You need to perceive that the water is heating. You need to perceive that things are changing and you need to leap off of the water before it's too late. That's our, my, one of our main messages today. Don't be like the frog. And what Felix was alluding to this before, uh, talking about you know, knowledge economy and how things are changing. And he's an expert on the knowledge economy. You want to tell us, uh, Felix, how is this a little bit different from the classic way to do things? Yeah, so a little bit is, is, is in terms of, of sort of industry 4.0. You know, if industry 1.0 was sort of steam and power, steam engine, uh, this uh, industry 2.0, sort of the assembly line. Industry 3.0 is, is, is sort of using uh, automation, electronics. Industry 4.0 is really a cyber physical space. It is, it is about how humans interact with, with uh, machines and vice versa. It's the internet of things. It is uh, uh, AI. It's predictive analytics. And I, I think if, if that is going to become a bigger part of our life, which I predict, and even a dominant part of our life, I think ultimately the professional roles and identities are going to be different. And I would even say that the focus on professional identity is going to be less important than than. Um, really the competencies you could uh, you can demonstrate through assessment on that. And it's important to highlight that, which is one of the main structural changes and one of the main uh, changes in mindset. So for the future, it will doesn't, it will does not really matter if you're a physician, you're a nurse, you're a uh, physician assistant, you're a nurse practitioner, you're a respiratory therapist. What is going to matter is if you can perform a particular task, or if you possess a particular set of skills and how that task ability and that skill interacts with other people. So that's what uh, it means when you say that we're moving from the primacy of identity, for example, a physician, to the primacy of competency, the ability to do something or know something that nobody else can do at the team. That's key. And that's one of the main things that will create the future. And that leads to the next, uh, uh, the next layer, to the next consequence, the next order consequence of this. Right now we have a system that we have multiple disciplines and multiple identities, interacting with patients and then interacting with administrators, interacting with insurances and so forth. The new frameworks that we're going to deal in the mid and short term future are a little bit different. And uh, we need to understand that right now, all our interactions are essentially human to human, but that will change. We'll have interactions that are human to human. We'll have interactions that are machine to human, also human to machine, and also machine to machine. And those new type of interaction will uh, create a little bit different ecosystem. And how things are gonna probably play out are something like this. So we have a layer that is all the patients that we need to care, we need to take care of. On top of that layer will be a layer of providers where there's primacy of skills, primacy of competency, meaning that it's not gonna be physicians, it's not gonna be nurses, this layer is gonna be a provider. And these providers are probably gonna be trained with a set of skills that we're gonna discuss in the next segment during the FOX. 
but essentially will interact between the patients and the next layer. So what is the third layer? The next layer is a very wide, a very strong, a very potent AI that will make most, if not all, the data-driven decisions. And this AI will inform this layer of providers, you know, what are the recommendations? And the fourth layer will be humans again. And these humans will make the policy decisions and will make some of the creative decisions and will keep the AI on check. But most, if not all, of the data-driven or performance decisions are gonna be done by the sophisticated AI. And that's how we uh, predict things are going to work out. So Bank, any questions in the chat so far? This is the end of the frog segment. I haven't seen anything come through just yet. Christy, anything in Slido? Perfect. One more time, we want questions. This is built around questions. So please feel free to ask whatever you think is necessary. So now another moving... way to bring it through is just to have an example. So imagine that uh, Epic kind of bulks up and is becoming a AI-ish tool to help with predictive analytics, uh, help manage patients. Let's say there is, uh, you know, based on vital signs uh, and past history, uh, it will give you a percentage scores of the chance of, of sepsis or severe sepsis, and it tells you uh, uh, to consider this order set. I think one of the issues is if AI is inputs, black box, and outputs, and, and Danny is going to talk about it, that AI is only as good as the quality of the inputs and the quality of the algorithms that manage those inputs. And what we've seen is there can be bias in the inputs and there can be bias in algorithms. Who is the skeptic? Who is the person that says, you know, if we have something like COVID and we have all this prediction for sepsis and we need to give antibiotics, how do we change those, those inputs and algorithms to really not old prescribe uh, antibiotics. And so what is that professional identity? Is it a physician? Is it an IT person? Uh, or is it someone that can be from multiple identities or professional identities that has the skills to really look at, let's say, and I'm just using this example for AI, at, 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 at this platform or AI light with, with you know, supercharged Epic. So those are the sort of things we're gonna talk about is, is what are the identities and what are the skills and what are the structure that would support something like that? So, so I have a question. Um, if and, and you kind of touched a little bit upon this, Felix, is that um, we're really highly dependent on the inputs and you've, you've placed AI above as the sort of director as to what the intermediate between the patient and the AI uh, is going to listen to and, 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 and follow. But we, we know that the inputs are so dis difficult right now. The sepsis sniffers are, are terrible. They, they're weighted towards sensitivity, but not towards specificity. And we'll use the example of a pain scale, which is supposed to be objective, but is highly subjective. Um, and I think of things like a medical student walking in and looking at a patient versus a highly skilled clinician. And there's so much interpretation and subtlety that goes in to the data acquisition. And so how will our sophisticated systems be able to uh, develop these skills of interpretation uh, and uh, modulation of response that we as humans with our complex brains and our skills that we develop over time be able to, to accomplish that so that we can feel confident that the AI is factoring in all of these nuances. 
when the data is not nearly as as solid or hard as we like to think of it being. Let me let me start and, and Felix can follow after that. Uh, I think you're hundred percent, Jim. Um, currently, the data is not the data quality is not there yet. But if you look five years or 10 years in the past, we didn't even have good data at the time and data is getting better and better and better. So I think what is gonna uh, bridge the gap is two things. One is better data acquisition and we're gonna have biometric sensors and we're gonna have better ways to capture the data. And just to highlight, as you said, that currently the data is probably not there yet. And the second thing is there's gonna be some data and some machine learning tricks that may help with that. Uh, for example, things like um, generative adversarial networks, you know, this, the same ones that create like this um, uh, deep fakes and faces and videos that can be applied for uh, healthcare data. And that is, is an area of rapid, rapid um, evolution. Felix? Yeah, so it's uh, a great question. Uh, so just a couple of stories. You know, AI is AI until it has a name, and that's not an AI anymore. You know, AI is GPS. Uh, uh, and there's a great story that I've, I'm still trying to make, uh, see if this is just an urban legend or not, is a bunch of tourists in, in Australia rented a car and put the Great Barrier Reef on their GPS. And so they literally drove to the beach, into the water until they figured out that they weren't gonna to get to the Great Barrier Reef. And so, so you, you do need the skills on, on, on how, to, how to interact uh, with AI, and then we'll talk about the fusion, and also a structure to really determine who's the ultimate decider. Uh, I personally think, you know, it's so interesting in terms of, of, of the new world of disparity may actually be AI driven. So Obenmeyer is actually an emergency physician that talks a lot about, about bias in the AI, bias in the inputs, bias on who actually built the algorithms. Is that a diverse group or is that a very homogeneous group? And I think part of actually this reason for this, this, this talk and this conversation is, is to get more people engage in these conversations at all, uh, overall, you know, ultimately, I don't think AI will make physicians obsolete, but I think it will make physicians that don't interact with AI obsolete. We're going to go with the uh, next segment. Let me start saying that I disagree with, uh, with Felix. I think physicians will be obsolete and I think physicians are obsolete right now, but that's a longer conversation. So the fox, the fox comes with this idea of the fox and the hedgehog, which is this Isaiah Berlin essay uh, uh, that is based on a Greek poet called Archilochus, which, uh, which says like the fox know many small things and the hedgehog, hedgehog knows one big thing. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to say with this idea is, Foxes are synthesizers. They get all this information and they try to make sense of the information, how to interact with each other information. So network kind of approach, synthesizing, putting things together, understanding the big picture. And the hedgehogs are, are analyzers. So they understand one single problem very, 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 very well, but may not be able to put this problem together with other problems. That's the idea of the hedgehog and, and the fox. And we use that as, a, as an image for what we're gonna say right now. And uh, Felix, you want to uh, tell us how the fox interacts with the nomad concept that you mentioned before? Yeah, sure. You know, it's so interesting. I think of the hedgehog, I think good to great and Jim Collins and, and companies and all that. I, and I also think from a, you know, I was trained as a hedgehog, you know, part of the, of medical education is, is really knowing a subject, breaking it down in component parts and knowing everything about the component parts and then have sort of this expert on the component parts of that. And I, uh, my frame is it's a little OCD-ish. You know, you have a narrow sort of uh, area that you know it very deeply. If you take sort of the, the, the OCD, 
sort of metaphor and move at 90 degrees, so moving from lots of uh, depth and little breadth to lots of breadth uh, and, and less depth, I think you do have a fox. And, and I think nomads are the ones that can, can easily go from, from one discipline to the other. I wouldn't truly call it ADD. If anything, I would call it augmented ADD is really seeing the connections of this, this these disparate sort of uh, 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 areas of study and all that. Uh, next slide. And I think one way to really manage this sort of new future, if, if this mindset is something that speaks to you, is to have these skills. And I think in the questions we ask, you know, how we as humans interact with non-humans and, and uh, machines, I would say it's also how we interact with patients. It's how we interact with families. Uh, how we interact with members of the healthcare team, and then also how we interact with the public. You know, we've seen, we'll talk later about how COVID has been a little bit of an accelerator in terms of, of maybe seeing what may be in the future. Uh, there's a lot of people in the public sphere right now with COVID, and, uh, a lot of emergency physicians feeling that, that they really almost have a calling to, to try to, to help with that. And so these skills are sort of the explainer, the understander, the skeptic we talk about, the collaborator, the advocate. And these aren't uh, pulled out of a hat that uh, Daniel and I have. Some are based on this uh, book. If you're interested in, in this conversation, this is sort of a great book that really talks about the, uh, the skills and abilities needing uh, that are needed by, uh, uh, by people interacting with, with sort of this industry 4.0, this cyber physical uh, space. And if we assume that clinicians need different skills, they will need to be assessed differently to make sure they're uh, competent in those skills. And they will need to have an infrastructure of learning and teaching that would support that. The good news is there's already a push for medical educators to kind of change their center of gravity. It used to be when I started is if you knew everything about emergency medicine and you knew everything about medical education and you kind of transacted that knowledge to learners, you were a good medical educator. I think the future is you're really a, a learning choreographer. A choreographer, you are really engaging with technology. You're a coach, but, but the focus on just transmitting knowledge is going to be a little bit more peripheral to really building the system to learn new skills and abilities. Next slide. Absolutely. Now comes kind of the meat of the sandwich of our uh, lecture. We're gonna discuss, as uh, Felix highlighted, some of the skills that are important to develop in this new framework, especially the human to machine interactions. But I just want to put in perspective, you know, many of us when we went to medical school and we have statistics, um, you know, when I, I was in first year of medical school, I remember going to statistics and it didn't make a lot of sense to me what I need to know and what I need to learn in statistics. You know, 25 years into the future, like I would love to know more about statistics to understand better many, many things from research to machine learning to uh, many other domains. Uh, when I was in med school, I remember having this empathy um, training and this uh, active listening and active discussion training. And it didn't make any sense to me why I'm going through this as a medical student. Of course, I didn't have the perspective. Going back 25 years into the future, I would love to listen better to the, my teacher of uh, empathic listening and um, empathic interview. So what I'm trying to say is you need to have perspective that things that may appear to be strange right now and you don't really know how to do it, believe me, 25 years into the future, uh, you will use these skills. And we're gonna go one per one and Phil is gonna start with the first one. Yeah, so these fusion skills, the, the first one is, is we actually truly need some conceptual understanding 
of let's say, and, and we're using sort of AI as an example, is we don't need to be experts in AI, but it's almost like a toaster. We don't need to be an electrical engineer to uh, understand electricity, but we need to understand electricity enough is if we're using a toaster, we don't get electrocuted and we make good toast. And I think sort of a, a, a similar uh, conceptual understanding for AI is probably, especially if we're going to be in the knowledge field and we're going to interact, uh, uh, especially if there, uh, there's uh, uh, sort of this change of, of, of uh, human dominance to machine dominance and vice versa, that relationship, we need a conceptual understanding. So it's important for all of us to try to enroll in some simple certificates about AI machine learning, trying to understand how machine learning affects um, what we're doing. And we, again, we don't need to do an entire degree on machine learning. We don't need to get even like a master in machine learning, but being curious and trying to get some education about machine learning uh, is, is fundamental for the future. The next skill is probably the one that uh, is gonna be more important in the uh, day-to-day -day bedside work. And is the people who explains, is the explainer. Uh, right now, if you look at most of the artificial intelligence, machine learning and other advanced technologies as a, such as blockchain is, especially in the papers is, you know, we did something with the data, we put it in this black box, something came out from the black box and now we need to do whatever the black box says. That's not going to fly. And it doesn't fly right now in research. There's all this um, controversy around that the algorithms are uh, proprietary and they're not published. So nobody can really analyze the, the, what happened with the data. And all these outcomes are sort of like magic outcomes. And uh, that will happen you know, when we use machine learning for educational outcomes. You, you know, as residents and fellows, somebody's going to put all your evaluations in a black box and the black box will say, you know, Jimmy passes and Johnny fails, have a good day. Um, it is important to have somebody who have the conceptual understanding that uh, Felix mentioned, who also can explain what happened the data and why the algorithm uh, creates any given output. You know, and we see this in our daily life in the pre-AI era. If we have a patient, in, you know, in the bedside and we tell them, uh, my recommendation is for you to take ciprofloxacin uh, 500 uh, two times a day for seven days. But we don't tell them why. The chances that they're going to follow our recommendations and the chances that we explain them why we made the recommendation are quite against us. So right now we tell them, we think you have an infection in the urine because your culture grew X bacteria. And what we'll recommend for this type of bacteria is ciprofloxacin because resistance is low and it gets good penetration in the, in the kidneys and so forth. We may need to do that with AI too. Uh, and we need to develop both the understanding of the AI and the way to communicate those uh, results to patients. The next skill, which is probably the king or queen skill is the critical judgment. And uh, Felix made some um, uh, synopsis already and Jim made the question about you know, the quality of the data. And we, we understand that for a machine learning algorithm for any sort of artificial intelligence to make a recommendation, they need data and they need a lot of data. But the problem is that that data typically is built on some biases, implicit or explicit, or just you know, random biases. And those machine learning algorithms will learn from that data and will make recommendations that will be tested on a validation data, and then will have prime time or ready to go recommendations. The problem is you will need to be critical about how that algorithm uh, got the data and what the algorithm uh, is built on. First layer will be, the obvious. If a chest pain algorithm learned from a population of a pregnant patients with chest pain, and you're using that algorithm in an 85-year-old guy farmer from southeastern Minnesota, of course the algorithm doesn't apply, but you need to be able to understand that. Other things that will require a little bit better understanding is, supposedly you have appropriate data but the machine learning tool was not the appropriate. Instead of doing a supervised learning, it was unsupervised. 
and now you're dealing with a supervised outcome and you're using an unsupervised learning algorithm, the data may not apply either. The other thing you need to understand is uh, there's many types of um, uh, artificial intelligence appliances. Some of the algorithms will be static. So they will be the same for every single input, but some algorithms and especially the most um, powerful, powerful ones will be dynamic algorithms, dynamic data analysis. So the outcome for input A today is X, but the, for the, the outcome for input A tomorrow may be Y, so it will change. So one day you're gonna see yourself doing one thing and the next day you're gonna do something different. And it's because the algorithm change and change because how the data is managed, which is a good thing. And this is something interesting because the same way that we have nutritional values for food and the same way that we have pharmaceutical um, warnings and uh, insert packages for uh, medications, people working on this and actually Molly Jeffries is working something similar. Now, when we have FDA approved algorithms, what is called software as a medical device, this algorithm would probably need to have a clear understanding, what was the population that was derived? What was the testing population? What type of algorithm this is? When is the expiration date of the algorithm before we can use them? So we need to have a lot of critical skills to make a critical judgment of the algorithm or the device that we're using. Felix? Yeah, the other fusion skill is, is, is co-location, cooperation, collaboration. Is, is really leaning into that. Again, if we use sort of the analogy of Epic uh, being rudimentary AI, which uh, just as an example, and we could argue whether that is or not. It's interesting to me, at least in our residency, there are uh, residents and faculty that are actually training Epic uh, 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 and explaining and sustaining. They're the ones making the dot phrases. They're the ones that are working usually as a crowdsource. We have a whole department that crowdsource our documentation. So truly train Epic to, to, uh, uh, to perform in, in a different way. And conversely, then... Epic augments the ability of the clinician and all that. And again, Epic, the only reason I use Epic is that it's, it's an example that we are uh, aware of every day. And again, you can argue, but I think whether it's robotics, uh, uh, AI and all that, that sort of co-location uh, and cooperation where the human uh, really amplifies uh, the machine and the machine augments the human is I think part of the future uh, future and truly will allow for co-production of value in healthcare. And then ultimately, I think Daniel mentioned it, it's about a, all about advocacy. You can have, let's say you have a patient with diabetes that has sort of a gangrenous tone of foot. And if you have the, the, the best algorithm that predicts the, uh, you know, where that foot's going to be viable and all that. If ultimately the patient does not want a foot amputation, I think as a clinician, we need to guide people through that and through that decision that ultimately, I personally think, you know, there's debate of, of who's the ultimate decider. I do think, uh, I personally foresee humans still being the ultimate, uh, decider on that, but there'll be an advocacy role for clinicians, not only in the AI, but in some of the biases in how some of the decisions to move away from human to, to non-human decision makers are made. And part of that is governance and discussion, which we're having right now. I agree with Felix. I, um, despite that I don't see a lot of role for doctors, I do believe that humans will be the final deciders. And actually this is interesting because we're organizing a um, course with Colin Bax and one of our guests is uh, Holly Ridings, which is the um, NASA chief flight director. And we had a conversation with her a few weeks ago when we asked her, you know, in your work as NASA ch uh, chief director, you have a lot of AI working. Who do you think will be the ultimate uh, decider for no, for go, no go missions or for like some catastrophic failure? And she was pretty clear. 
when there's human values involved, humans will always be the last decider. So it was a great conversation. You can listen to that in a few more weeks when we release the podcast. Um, what folks implies, you know, what the second segment implies is we're going to have a lot of machine to human interactions. And what's important to note is we already have a lot of machine to human interactions, but we don't realize. There's, they're paying us money to train Epic. They're paying us money to create the data. And that's happening right now, January 2022 in Rochester, Minnesota. So it's important to have that perspective. Bank or yeah. Christy, any question from chat or Slido? Yeah, in Slido, um, there was curiosity on how people can become more involved with AI within Mayo Clinic's practice. So it's a great question that actually I'm supposed to have a great answer right this second as part of PKS. Um, the short answer is there are multiple opportunities. We're going to have the discussion uh, later on. There's uh, several courses that Mayo either uh, sponsors or produces. And as anything in life, the most important thing is for you to be curious about it and have access to you know, good quality information. I'm happy to discuss details with anybody later on. Uh, Jim and Annie. Um, thank you, Felix and Daniel. That was a great talk. We haven't uh, finished it. We have one more module to go. Oh, I thought you were taking questions. Okay. Are you taking questions now or no? Yes. Oh, but we're not finished. Yeah. I, the, the thing I've, I know you both well, and you both see the word world in math, future and entropy. And I appreciate that because it's a different perspective than I have. And I can understand, you can bring it to my level so I can understand it. It's more of a comment. I really like what both you and Felix said that really humans are going to augment machines and machines are going to augment humans. And really human values still have a place in this. When I, when I talk, I think the military is probably the farthest ahead on AI. And I have some friends who've been involved in it. And what they tell me is, is that this, that's exactly right. That there's still a big role for humans because we see the, the world in a slightly different way. And the data, it has to be organized, sorted, and really kind of given to us in a way that we can, we can synthesize it. So I really appreciate your talk um, and I don't want to go over. Um, Annie, do you want to say something? I'll wait until you're done and then see if you've already answered my question. Perfect. So we went to the third Carrera, part. There was, the there was one other question. Sorry. I'll go ahead. In the chat, um, assuming these predictions come true, what should we do as individuals and group to be leaders of healthcare industry 4.0? Answer coming. Uh, so that's part of the electric ship. Can I ask one question, just going back to the educator and AI? We mm -hmm. talked about, I like the concept of the choreographer and a coach, but if we say less of a choreographer, because the human factor that I think AI doesn't appreciate is accountability, right? You can provide information, but unless you have a degree of accountability, that's where it falls through. You look at flipped classroom, you look at asynchronous. So how, so I think I like the idea of a coach, but how do you utilize AI and factor in the accountability issue that is just a human nature. Felix? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've hardwired in terms of educational accountability has been assessment. Uh, and, and the question is how much of assessment is human versus uh, machine? I think Daniel mentioned that uh, you, you know, are all assessments going to be uh, uh, a sort of language, you know, automated language processing of, of evals and, and the machine will have the, the, the uh, sort of competency committee. I do think they're uh, continuing with assessment. And I do think there is something magic of, of, a, of a group of humans uh, interacting in terms of, of having sort of a, a final assessment. Uh, you know, the question is then what is the assessment? And what is interesting is that may be the wrong question. So Case van der Vluten is a big assessment guru in medical education. And they've studied, you know, what's the best assessment? Is it a written test, an oral test? Is it an ASCII and all that? And actually what they found is it doesn't matter what the assessment is. It is, have you assessed enough time? You know, once you get to 10 or 12 assessments, that is helpful if you have, you know, eight to 10 people in the, in, in the uh, uh, um, a competency committee to do the assessment, uh, assessment on who's competent, who's not. So I don't know if that answers your question in terms of 
of ultimately will humans assess competencies or will AI? I personally believe that there is uh, a strong uh, a sort of human dominant thing. Having said all that is one of the interesting things. We always assume AI is biased and, and, and all this because of the inputs and the uh, you know, homogeneity of the people that are actually making the algorithms. Uh, there's some work that actually is looking to AI to actually mitigate biases of humans and biases of humans, especially in the in in the in the the non non uh, non written assessments, uh, or even looking at questions and seeing if there's a differential in terms of bias differential and how the questions work. So again, similar to to the human machine interaction, I I think uh, humans can really work with AI. Uh, 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 to really improve assessments. And I, and I think AI can help humans in terms of improving assessments. So John Chuba asked in the chat about what we can do to you know, deal with this. And here comes some of the answer, which actually, you know, there's some as many questions as answers. So it's difficult to figure out what to do. It's difficult to uh, react to this. Um, and I think one of the main messages from this lecture now coming is like, instead of trying to predict what the future is going to look like, it's better try to predict the future. That's the only way you're going to be successful at dealing with what's coming. And I, I think you, you need to be ambidextrous. I mean, I think the reality of organizations and, and, and Daniel introduced me to this concept of the ambidextrous organization it is uh, organizations that maximize their value in the current sphere while simultaneously looking towards a new future. So it's not an either or is, you know, one of the interesting things to me is, is just the energy, let's say around industry 4.0 or AI and all that. It is, it's linked to innovation which means people are like, well, I better get on board to this or else I'm gonna be innovated out of a job. Uh, there's usually a long line of, I wanna be part of this innovation. I wanna be part of this uh, uh, center. Um, and, and often those centers are structured in old structures. And I, I think the best way to operate in the future is also have to have ambidextrous skills still do everything in the here and now to provide value, to take care of a patient next Tuesday, but actually uh, inform yourselves and skill up a little bit, either through formal channels or informal channels in terms of what these fusion skills are in the future. How can you be assessed on them? How can you surround yourself with communities that you can learn from each other? So we're asking people like a huge, huge, task. So you not only need to be great as what you're doing right now, you need to prepare for a job and you need to prepare for a future that doesn't exist. And, you know, I, I know it's really difficult for people who's in, in the training stage of their lives. For all of you who are med students, PA fellows, it's, it's really difficult. One of our propositions is one of the, our main propositions is you need to acquire skills that are not restricted to healthcare. So one important thing to do is when you're done with your, you know, final accreditation, either, you know, emergency medicine residency, uh, emergency medicine fellow, nurse, or whatever, you need to start acquiring skills that allow you to create new things. So instead of focusing on more fellowships, instead of focusing in more clinical training, you need to acquire skills such as AI, you need to acquire skills such as entrepreneurship, you need to acquire skills such as data management or active uh, role-playing, or there's many, 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 many options, but you need to spread your uh, uh, armamentarium. You need to acquire more skills. You should not be uh, pitch-holed into only clinical skills. And we're trying to move from the analogy of the uh, hedgehog and the fox to the analogy of alpha versus beta. And, you know, some of you who have been involved in software development know about this idea of beta in the sense of like the product, in this case, yourself. 
is never finished. You're always changing. You're always incorporating feedback. You're always trying to improve. So it's a never ending product. So you, if you fail, you take that failure as a way to improvement. Unfortunately, healthcare is all, all about being alpha. So you never deploy a product unless the product is airtight and we sure works perfectly and there's no chance of error. That makes healthcare a little bit uh, uh, slow and lagging compared to other industries. So we need to transition from this always alpha mentality to this always beta mentality. We're always a product changing. We always need to improve. We always need to go for the next level of improvement. And I think the two recommendations that we have are, you, instead of trying to match your development to a known career, you need to acquire skills that allow you to match things that don't exist yet. You need to acquire more skills and you need to be imaginative enough to acquire skills that may not appear right now to be helpful, but may be, they may be helpful in the future. Yeah, just to, uh, uh, to build on what Daniel's uh, said, it's so interesting. Often we are so busy that spending time to do fuzzy stuff is seem, seems like a poor ROI. And I would tell you is nothing gets done unless it's scheduled. And to schedule fuzzy time, and part of that is actually just to pay attention. Uh, in the Greek language, it's interesting. There's two, two words for time, essentially. One is chronos, which is time as we sort of know it and everything. The other one is kairos, which is timing. You know, and there's certain things when the timing is right, if you're ready to jump in, uh, uh, I think it would be an incredible journey. So one of the interesting things I think I alluded to is, is COVID was, was interesting. I first, you know, had these discussions, you know, last year was a horrible time to get jobs as an emergency medicine uh, graduating resident and all that. And, and what people started talking is COVID may be what pre, uh, uh, was an accelerant that predicts what may, uh, things may look like in five or 10 years. And what's interesting to me is COVID has really pushed the emphasis a little bit more to decentralize and distributed. Now, you know, something as simple as conferences, I learn as much from the back channeling and the chat as I do from the information transfer. And especially on some of these high stakes committee meetings, you know, people that normally may have not spoken up, uh, there's an incredible value hearing what they have to say. Uh, so part of it is just paying attention. Uh, uh, in terms of recommendations, I mean, someone once told me you are what you read and who you hang out with. I would tell you to, to read stuff about this uh, or hang out with people that are. So the best way I think Daniel and I read about it is we write about it. Uh, but there's some of these things about uh, distributed learning organizations, you know, if truly structures going distributed, you know, some of the tools, whether it's blockchain or whatnot, uh, uh, to support that. You know, there, there are, in medical education, there's distributed learning organizations. I would tell you the faculty incubator is one of them, uh, uh, which really, for me personally, has brought a lot of value to a lot of educators. Next slide. Or there's organizations, you know, CODA is interesting. It's, it's, it's evolved from, from uh, SMAC. Many of you may have known about social media and critical care, but this is really about clinical knowledge and community and advocacy. It's really uh, the synthesis of climate change and critical care. Ilium U, in terms of just doing badges, I mean, literally, this is a, a, a group, a non-hierarchical group of 15 or 20 people that are, are, are transferring medical education. And then I would tell you where I learned the most. Recently, I've been involved in sort of this incubator of, of physicians, uh, ER and ICU in, in Australia and New Zealand, and just seeing how they're dealing with things clinically and educationally. So these things are around. Uh, you just need to pay attention. The best way to pay attention is actually scheduling things where you actually just look and pay attention. So this is the end of the last part. And um, we would like to bring, you know, these five learning points. Healthcare is changing rapidly. Don't be the frog. 
jump out of the water before it's too hot. Industry 4.0 or always beta is replacing classic industrial healthcare or the always alpha. It's difficult to balance the here and now with the future. So you have two jobs, be good in the present, but also you need to prepare for the future. It's imperative to start acquiring fusion skills, how to interact with machines. And the best way to create the future, or the best way to predict the future, is to create the future. Thank you very much. Uh, Christy and Jim, is it okay if we do some questions or do we need to transition quickly? Yeah, Carmen's okay with us taking some time from her lecture. Awesome. There were a couple of questions in Slido. Um, first, how do we incorporate this prediction in making decisions on pursuing a fellowship? Felix, you're a little bit more close to the work uh, market, the job market. Yeah, so it's a very good question. Uh, just top of that hat. My recommendation is to look at fellowships that give you the most uh, flexibility, which may be actually fellowships that are, um, uh, let's say, not ACGME approved, as an example. You know, so we have a, a, a we have a quality fellowship, and we've had a lot of people go through that, and and have been able to, to, to really tailor their education to the future. The one thing I would tell you, which is incredible, is if you have, are a learner, you have access to so many people that you may not have after your learner. So if you're a, a fellow, let's say in QI or operations, you may have much more access to getting into AI labs than after that. Uh, so my recommendation is to look at fellowships that give you the most flexibility. And you may have an answer to that question too. Another question that was posed was, if physicians are obsolete, do we have a social responsibility to inform undergrads that they shouldn't go to medical school and go into technology fields instead? Yes. Okay. I, uh, I challenge a premise. This is where Daniel and I disagree. I think physicians will never be obsolete. I think the uh, uh, what we may be doing as as physicians may actually be in this wisdom role. We may be, you know, public advocates. Uh, uh, so I think we should tell students that this is the future. I, I don't want to get a lot of time from uh, from Carmen, but I always bring the vampire example. You know when. Bank, would you like to be a vampire? You probably cannot answer that question because you don't know what a vampire is, or you know you don't know how to living like a vampire is. Right. So when I talk to um, uh, medical students, it's like you know the way you think you're going to practice medicine in 15 years from now is 100% different to what it looks right now. So I don't think you can truly make the decision. Another question. How do you see the concepts in your talk intersecting with the predicted surplus of emergency medicine physicians in 2030? Let me take that rapidly. So if you have read it, you should go to the Reddit, ask me anything from the ASEP um, president. And I think it was like three weeks ago, four weeks ago. She essentially made the, made the uh, argument like, you need to start looking to do other things but emergency medicine. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, commotion among, you know, the emergency medicine world. Um, there's going to be a surplus. Uh, we're going to end up doing things that we were not planning to do uh, five years ago. I would probably answer that as, as, as I had a little rare downtime uh, in the uh, department one of the last shifts and talked to a resident about that. Uh, and essentially, I think we are the, you know, the cockroaches after the nuclear war. I think the skill set we have uh, are so adaptable to every, I think. So I actually truly don't think there's going to be a surplus emergency physicians. Uh, I think you're going to have so many more physicians doing the synthetic work, you know, that we do. I mean, we make decisions based on limited uh, data. We, uh, 
we truly um, are more augmented ADD. So if augmented ADD is the future with fusion skills, I think we're well set for the future. So that's my personal opinion in terms of, of that. Thank you both so very much. Um, as was said in the chat, and I would refer you there, there's a lot of um, different perspectives and resonance there. Uh, this really broadens a lot of our where we are. It's several standard deviations from the current life we lead. And so thank you both so very much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting us. Well, thank you very much. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. <laughs>